guys. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you, Lord. We ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you brought us all here by divine appointment. We thank you for those that are watching on live stream, those that will hear this later. And may you minister to every single heart. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says to us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. So background on Chronicles, we've talked about this. So Chronicles was a letter written to the children of Israel when they were coming back from 70 years in bondage in Babylon and returning to Israel. And as they're coming back, specifically to Jerusalem, they were given a history lesson because they've been gone for 70 years. They didn't even know what was going on really in Israel. Most of them were born in captivity or they were very young. So as they're coming back, they're given a history lesson. And it's a history lesson to teach them to understand uh, God's plan for Israel. In 1 Chronicles, it's all about King David's life. And in 2 Chronicles that we picked up, it's been talking about Solomon, who passed away in an earlier chapter. So the kingdom's been divided because Solomon did not obey God. So Solomon, God, God had promised David's family that his children, that his descendants would rule and reign in Israel as long as they obeyed the Lord. But when they disobeyed the Lord, he told them that the kingdom would be taken from them. So at this point, there's 10 northern kingdoms called Israel, and there's two southern kingdoms, Judah and uh, Benjamin, right, that are the Benjamites and and Judah. They're the southern tribe. So the southern tribe is called Judah. The northern tribe is called Israel. And so remember that it was due to that compromise. Here's what the compromises were that caused Solomon to lose the kingdom, in a sense. Remember, he was multiplying gold, he was multiplying horses, and he was multiplying women in a big way. And they were told as kings not to do that. And here's the problem. If you have so much gold, you cease to be desperate for God. If you have too many horses, you know, too much big of a military, you don't see, you don't cry out to God when you're faced with an enemy. And when you have too many wives... Uh, you again, you're living in immorality. And what happened was that was the ultimate thing that brought about their demise. Because if you remember, these women brought in their false gods with them. And so before you knew it, Solomon had set up all these altars to all these false gods. And, and the same Solomon who built the temple and spent seven years building this temple for the Lord was the same one that allowed idolatry to come into Israel. And that's why he was, the kingdom was ripped from him. So his idolatry, again, had high places everywhere, and then the ten northern kingdoms were taken away, were now being ruled by, the man, by a man by the name of Jeroboam. And if you remember about Jeroboam, if you've been here, Jeroboam became the leader in the north, and Rehoboam was in the south. And we saw him last week, he passed away last week. But Jeroboam, if you'll remember this, he was afraid of losing the people to Judah, Because what happened was there would be three times a year, they would go down to Jerusalem and they would worship at the temple. And they had these great feasts and sacrifices that were made. So because he was afraid if they went down there, they might not come back. He created another way to worship and he set up these false idols, these golden calves, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And he'd say, hey, you don't have to go all the way down there to make your sacrifices. You can just sacrifice to the false gods right here. You don't have to go down and, and have the priests. You don't have to you know, uh, you know, lay down lives of animals. You can just do that here. And so there's something, there's nothing new under the sun, because that still happens today, where people want to go to church only if it's convenient. You know, I want to serve the Lord the way I want to serve the Lord, and I don't want it to be anything that takes away from my life. And so Jeroboam is up in the north, and Rehoboam, as we saw last week, he died. So, so Rehoboam, if you'll remember that he, the reason that we're going to see a little bit about him tonight, but Rehoboam, he remember, he took over for his father. And if you'll remember back in chapter 11, that the people came to him when his dad died and said, hey, I'm giving a pastor day paraphrase. Can you give us, cut us some slack? I mean, you're taxing us into the ground. You're working us into the ground. Can you show us a little favor? And the elders came to him and said, if you show them favor, they'll be loyal to you forever. But then he went and talked to his buddies, and his buddies said, oh man, they don't get any favor, don't, don't cut them any slack. And then we see that term where he says, my, the weight of my finger will be stronger than my father's waist. What he's saying is, I'm going to make it so hard on you. And then it caused the people to want to rebel against Rehoboam. And again, it brought great heartache to the kingdom. So now as we come to tonight's chapter, 
Grab the outline if you have it. If you don't, we can give you one on the back table there. Tell the message, the battle belongs to the Lord. We're going to see a great battle take place tonight. You know, I don't think there's a book ever written that has more battles in it than the Bible. Amen? It's filled with battles. It's filled with wars. It's filled with all these things that take place. So I tell the message, the battle belongs to the Lord. And I, and I put trusting that God is for, is, if God is for us, uh, trusting that God is for us and with us. So we don't fight these battles alone. Our God is for us. Our God is with us. And the four, the four five points we're going to look at tonight. First, we're going to see that when we are outnumbered, we can trust God is for us and with us when we are outnumbered by the world. When we are outnumbered by the world. Our God is greater than any enemy you will ever face. No matter what you're going through in this life, our God is greater. What, no matter what enemy you may face, no matter what physical ailment you may have, no matter, no matter what trial of life you're going through, our God is greater. Number two, when we, take a, when we make a stand for the Lord, when we trust in the Lord, when the battle belongs to the Lord, when we take a stand for the Lord, and we're going to see Abijah do that tonight. We need to remember God's promises. When we make a stand for His Word, He stands with us. We not only stand for the truth, but we stand against the lies and the false gods of this world. So the battle belongs to the Lord. We're outnumbered by the world when we make a stand for the Lord. And when the battle changes and you feel outnumbered. So we're going to see in tonight's text that that Abijah, who's now going to be the king of Israel, is going to go out to war and he's going to be facing an enemy twice his size. And then they're going to surround him and he's going to be outnumbered and outmaneuvered. But guys, it doesn't matter what the world does around us. Our God is greater. And then number four, if God is for us, who can be against us? You plus God is a majority. Courage comes when you lean upon the Lord. And then finally, be hot or cold. We're going to see Abijah tonight. He's kind of a, an interesting character. So he is Rehoboam's son, the king that just died. And he raises up his son. And his son, from some perspective, as you read through it, he seems like he's a pretty solid guy. But when you read in other places in the Bible, he's really not. So let's begin there looking at the battle belongs to the Lord, 2 Chronicles chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, when we are outnumbered by the world. It says, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. This is the only time we see this in 2 Chronicles, because 2 Chronicles really focuses on Judah and not so much on Israel. But it tells us when Abijah becomes king. So Jeroboam has been king in the north for a great deal of time, and now uh, Abijah becomes the new king over Judah, those two southern uh, kingdoms. So Abijah is a descendant of King David, and he's given a name by his parents that honors God. His name means Jehovah is my father. That's awesome. He says, Jehovah is my father. That's his name. So he's got a godly name, raised by godly parents. Uh, he's Absalom's uh, great-grandson. And we're going to see that in the coming verses, he speaks, it speaks of David's descendants as the rightful leaders. He speaks also about the kingdom of God. He proclaims the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. So he's going to challenge Jeroboam and say, you guys are a bunch of idol worshipers. You guys have walked away from the true and living God. We stand with the true and living God. And so he's going to make a stand for the Lord. And when we read that, he's going to appear again like a pretty solid guy. But we do know from companion text, there's much more like his father Rehoboam than he was King David. It says in 1 Kings 15, And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as, his heart, as it was his heart of his father David. So even though he's going to make a stand for the Lord, when you look at his whole life, he doesn't seem like a man who's very godly. And you know, that can be us. Amen. Where we'll have times where we make a stand for the Lord, but we got to look at our life as a whole. It's not just what we look like on Sunday and Thursday night. It's not like just what we look like when we're at church or when we're reading our Bible, but it should be reflected in how we live our lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So while he's going to speak boldly of God, his own walk is not fully aligned with God. Then notice what it says in verse 2. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. Now, is that a long time for a king to reign or a short time? His father reigned 41 years and he was evil. 
He's only going to reign three years. We're going to see that God's blessing is not upon him. Even though in tonight's text, he's making a stand for God, but Abijah is only going to reign for three years. And again, while he may speak boldly and you know about God and his promises, his walk and his life are not going to produce fruit that reveal a man who's very spiritually mature. Then it says there in the second part of verse 2, his mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. So, and there was a war between Abijah and Jeroboam. We'll get to that in a moment. So his mom's name means who is like God. And that is her, 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 her dad was Absalom. Now, Absalom was the son of David. Now, what we know about Absalom, it says in the Bible that Absalom was the most handsome man in all of the land, kind of like King Saul. He was Rico Suave. He was a good-looking dude, right? And so the people were attracted to that. But we also know that Absalom was a man who betrayed his father. Absalom was a man who killed his older brother, but he killed his older brother because his older brother slept with his sister. This, pro- this family's a mess. Can I get an amen to that? So he kills him because, because of what Amnon did, and then Absalom was banished, and eventually Absalom tried to overthrow his father, and then he died in a war. So that's, this is Abijah's grandpa. And so he had, he's grown up with a dad who wasn't really walking with God in a, in, in, for very long. I mean, he had a bunch of women. He multiplied wives. He followed in the same footsteps of his father Solomon. And now Abijah's going to do the same thing. That's why it's so important how we raise our kids and what kind of example we are to them. Now, again, we can raise our kids in a godly home and they can choose to be ungodly because they have free will. But we want to make sure we raise our kids to know, love, and serve and honor the Lord. So again, we see he's the grandson of Absalom. Then it says there at the end of verse 2, as I just read, there was a war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Now this must break God's heart when it comes right down to it. So so remember, the children of Israel, they were all in bondage in Egypt for 430 years because they had worshipped idols. And then they cried out to God, and God brought a deliverer whose name was Moses. And Moses comes, remember, Moses spent 40 years as a prince in Egypt, then 40 years as a shepherd in the backside of the desert, and now God calls him to go and be the one to speak for God's people to deliver them out of bondage, if you've ever watched the movie Ten Commandments, right? And remember, he spent 40 years being somebody, 40 years being a nobody, and 40 years proving that God can use anybody, amen? So Moses goes in, he's a stutterer, and, and he goes in and they bring the plagues, and they're finally delivered out of bondage, and the last one of the plagues was Passover, where the angel of death would come and kill the firstborn of every family, unless you had the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross on your doorstep. The angel of death would pass over, and nobody in your family would die. So they finally let him go. And we know they get backed up against the Red Sea, and then the Egyptians change their mind. Who's going to make our bricks? Who's going to be our laborers? So they come to attack them, and what happens? They get backed up to the Red Sea, and all the children of Israel start to murmur, Moses, you brought us out here to die. He lifts up his, his staff, and the Red Sea parts. They walk through the Red Sea, and then the, when the Egyptians followed, followed in, the Red Sea caved in on them, and all of Pharaoh's people did the dead men float, Right? And so they're on the other side, and now they come to Mount Sinai, and Almighty God speaks to them from the mountain. And then Moses goes up on the mountain, he gives them the Ten Commandments, he brings them back to them. But when he comes back down the mountain, what are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. It does, 40 days was just too long for them to wait. Then they get, it's only an 11-day journey to the land of promise, so they get to the land of promise, instead of entering in, they're afraid. Because they sent in 12 spies, and 10 came back and said, there's giants in the land. Those guys will crush us. But Joshua and Caleb said, it's just like God said. We need to trust God. And they didn't trust the Lord. So they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But even as they wandered in the wilderness, the Lord went before them with a pillar of fire and a pillar of a cloud. And they would get up every morning and look up, and wherever the cloud moved, they went. If it stayed, they stayed. And for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, and that entire generation passed away. But even as they were wandering, God fed them with bread falling from the sky, manna. And their clothes, never, they never outgrew their clothes. They grew with them. And so they finally entered into the land of promise. Why am I telling you all this? Because these people were all on the same side. Their ancestors of both Jeroboam and Abijah, 
It was their great, great, great grandparents, right, that had been in bondage, and then they were the ones that came into the land of promise and defeated all the enemies, and that God was for them, so who could be against them? And now you fast forward a little bit, and they're at war with each other. And why are they at war with each other? Because they took their eyes off of God. Because they got caught up in the things of the world. And when I read this, you know what I thought about? I thought about how the church is at war with each other. Amen? Where the church can be divided, where we will fight over non-essentials, and it looks to the world like we're fighting with each other. Guys, if we can't agree as believers, why in the world? I mean, it's a, that's a horrible testimony to the world. Amen? Now, we need to take a stand for the essentials. If someone denies the resurrection, they're not our brothers, and we need to exhort them. If they deny the deity of Christ, if they deny the inerrancy of Scripture, you know, the, the basics of the faith the essentials of the faith, then we go to battle. But other than that, we should learn that we can agree to disagree on secondary issues because the world should look at us and see that we're united, not divided. Because it breaks God's heart to see Jeroboam and Abijah fighting, Israel and Judah fighting, and it breaks his heart to see his church at war with each other. So there's going to be a war, and a war among God's chosen people. And again, after all that God had done, instead of standing together, they're at war with each other. Verse 3. And it says there, And Abijah set in battle order with the army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. Now that's a good size army, amen? 400,000. How many of you guys ever been to the Rose Bowl? What? You guys lived at the Rose Bowl seats 100,000. So you fill that up four times, and he's got them all. And notice what it says of these men. It says that these men are, at battle order, their army of valiant warriors, 400,000 choice men. So these guys are, are warriors. They've been in battles before, and he mounts up his 400,000 guys. And here's the reality. Again, when you have a large army, you can cease to be desperate for God. Notice he's, he's got them all ready for battle, but we don't see him praying we didn't see him seeking the Lord and asking for God's wisdom or direction. He just mounts up his guys and says, we're going to go after these guys. So we're going to see that tribe of Judah, 400,000. But keep reading, because look what it says. Jeroboam also drew up in battle formation against him, against him 800,000 choice men, mighty men of valor. So 400,000 men against 800,000 men. Now that's a battle. That's a war and a half, right? And that's incredible. That makes the Civil War look like nothing. And so you have 1.2 million men. They're mounted up, and they're looking out at each other, getting ready to go into battle. And this is where Abijah is going to step up and speak to the children of Israel. So point number one, the battle belongs to the Lord, trusting that God is for us when we're outnumbered by the world. So Abijah... Here he is, he's God's man in Judah, where Jerusalem is, where the uh, temple is, and he's going out into battle, and he finds out he's outnumbered, two to one. And by the way, I think as Christians, we're far more outnumbered than that. I, my prayer would be there'd be more Christians than that, and, and you, if you take these straw polls that they have, they'll say that like 60% of Americans say they're Christians, but we know that's not true, or the world would be different, amen? Our country would be different. And so we're outnumbered, but you plus God is a majority. So point number two, the battle belongs to the Lord, trusting as God is for us when we make a stand for the Lord. Now watch Abijah. Now when you, when you start to hear the beginning of the speech and you hear the, the things that he's proclaiming, you're going to say, this guy sounds pretty solid. But again, if you see who he is throughout Scripture, we're going to see not as much as we would hope. Look what it says in verse 4. So they're all mounted up, 800,000 on one side, 400,000 on the other side. They're looking across at each other. The battle's ready to begin. It says, And Abijah stood on Mount Zemarim, which is the mountains of Ephraim, and he said, Hear me, Jeroboam and all Israel. I'd like to know how, without any uh, magnification, you can speak and 800,000 people can hear you. We can't even barely get it to work in here sometimes, right? But the point I'm making is that so he stands up, he's got his army with him, 
standing up on the mountain, so the word is traveling. He's looking down on this massive army ready to come against him, and he's going to make a stand for the things of God. He's going to speak to the children of Israel. Now again, Israel, they're all related. These guys are all part of the 12 tribes of Israel, but here they are, 10 tribes mounting up against two tribes. The battle's about to take place, and he's going to speak and again try to speak into their lives. By speaking about promises and the power of God, Abijah is, again, not an example we want to follow always, but some of the things that he's about to say merit favor. Now notice what it says here in verse 5. When I thought about this, I thought it's like the Baptist bounding up against the Lutherans or something, right? right? I mean, they're all Christians, right? I mean, not Christians in those days. They were believers in the true and living God. They were children of Israel. But here they are about to have a war. And Abijah is going to speak, and God, and again, he's going to make some challenges to the children of Israel. It says in verse 5, Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons by a covenant of salt? And you might wonder, what does that mean? So he says, hey, by the way, David was given all of the land. And that is true. David was told by God, that your descendants will rule and reign over Israel forever, as long as you remain faithful to me. Well, they had become unfaithful, and the kingdom had been ripped from them. So he's actually telling them something that was true, but is no longer true, that it's been taken away from them. So he's got kind of a selective memory, but he's letting them know, hey, we're descendants of David. They both were, but, but God has given it to our side of the family and you don't have any authority, we do, and we're the ones that God has chosen. Now, when it says a covenant of salt, you might wonder, what does that mean? Salt was looked upon not as just something that made things taste better, but something that made things permanent. This phrase is found uh, in several places throughout Scripture. In Leviticus, it says, And every offering of my meat shall have seasoned, be seasoned with salt, Neither shall it suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. There had to be seasoning on every offering that was made. They were always covered or sprinkled with salt. It says in Numbers, all the heave offerings of the holy things with the children of Israel offer to the Lord. I have given you and that your sons and your daughters with you a statue forever in that covenant, salt forever before the Lord. So when they put salt on it, it was a sign of permanence. And so what he's saying is this covenant was made by God to, to the kingdom of David and his family forever. But it was, a, it was contingent upon their faithfulness. In Scripture, you'll see some of this where it says, if you do this, then God will do this. If you do this, then God will do this. Well, God told David, if you will be faithful, if you will continue to worship me, if you will follow after me, I will bless every generation after you. And again, God's hand will be upon you. So this was an unbreakable covenant between the Lord and his descendants, and again, to make David and his sons kings over the nations of Israel, but he leaves out the key point to God's covenant with David as long as they were faithfully following the Lord and worshiping him. So the king of Israel was removed from the line of David due to their worship of idols and unfaithfulness to God's clear commands, like verse 6. Then it says, Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. So he's talking to Jeroboam, and he's talking to Jeroboam's army, and he's telling them, but Jeroboam is in sin because he raised up to come against those who God said would rule and reign forever. And so he's going after Jeroboam. He's attacking him because Jeroboam has, again, mounted up, and now he's the king over Israel, and now they're enemies of the, of the descendants of David down in the south. And so there's this battle taking place between them, and he's calling him out by name. If you recall back in 2 Chronicles 10, the rebellion against Rehoboam arose because, again, of his harsh treatment of the people. And because of that, he was told that the kingdom was going to be ripped from him. And again, we saw that that took place. So again, he says, it's in the hands of the sons of David, 
but again, he is only given part of the message. Be very careful that when you read the Bible, and this is where you get in trouble, when you take a text out of context, all you get left is a con. And someone will quote you half of a verse, but they don't give it to you in the context of the whole chapter. And that's why I love teaching verse by verse, because it's right in line with the chapter, and it's going to make sure that you understand the context. Who's speaking? Who are they speaking to? What's taking place in that time? So here's what is happening with Abijah. He's telling the truth, but not all of it. He's talking about the promise God had made to them, but it had been taken away. And now he's challenging Jeroboam, and again, he's making, you know, he's telling him, now notice what it says here, that Jeroboam came against him. Look what it says here. It says, rebelled against his Lord. It says in verse 7, And the worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and inexperienced and could not withstand them. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, Rehoboam was the one that was a descendant of Solomon and a descendant of David, and Jeroboam came and attacked him. And he took advantage of poor young Rehoboam. What's really hilarious about this, he's talking about his dad. And when this happened, he's making it sound like his dad was 12 years old. His dad was 41. So he's 41 years old. And he said, you took advantage of Rehoboam. And that's why you were able to come and, and battle against him. Abijah tries to turn his harsh and prideful father into a victim. Boy, this is nothing new under the sun, right? Rehoboam was in trouble because Rehoboam had harshly treated God's people, because Rehoboam had multiplied wives, because Rehoboam was worshiping false gods. So God allowed him to be defeated. And now his son is making it sound like he's a poor victim. And this is what we live in right now. Nobody's ever at fault for anything. It's never anybody's fault. It's always something somebody else did to them. Amen? You see it online. You see it everywhere you look. It's not my fault. You know, if you know, someone else did it to me, I'm a victim. Guys, you know what? We're not victim. We're not victims. We're, we're Christians who've been redeemed, forgiven. Amen? We're born again. We're new creations in Christ. By the way, we should never have anything to complain about. If you're going to heaven, you got nothing to complain about. Amen? He says his dad was tender-hearted. It means delicate, weak, weak of heart, timid. This is the guy that went out and said, my finger's going to be heavier than my father's waist. I'm going to put you guys to, you know, I'm going to put you into heavy taxes. I'm going to bury you in the ground with labor. He was mean and vicious. He was not tender-hearted whatsoever. And we tend to have a selective memory sometimes. So Abijah looks at the vision of the kingdom, and he blames it on Jeroboam, not on uh, Rehoboam's sinfulness, verse 8. It says there, And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hands of the sons of David? You are a great multitude, and with your gold cows, which Jeroboam made for you as gods. Now, this is a heavy-duty verse right here. Here's what he says to him: Oh, so you're going to come against God now. Let's see how that's going to work out, bro. Kind of what he's saying. You're going to come against the kingdom of the Lord? Oh, by the way, idol worship and calf maker. Amen. You're making golden calves. We know all about that. So you're going to, you got your golden calves up in Bethel and Dan, and you got people worshiping false gods up there, and you think you're going to come down here and go against the kingdom of the Lord? We'll see how that's going to work out. Now, Abijah is being bold. He's looking at an army twice his size. He truly believes God is on his side. Now, the truth is, at this point, both of them have been in rebellion. Both sides have, been, have worshipped idols. But Abijah says, look, God is for us. You're coming against the true and living God by coming against us. But do you know this? This should encourage everybody here tonight. If you don't hear anything else I say, listen to this. I want you to know that God is for you. Amen? You're born again. You're a new creation in Christ. You're going to heaven. Your name's been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He will never leave you nor forsake you, and no one can ever snatch you out of his hand. And you know what? God is for you. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And God's not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Amen? So we don't have to walk around being petrified of the world and being scared what the world might say or what the world might do or what might happen with the economy or anything else. Our God is Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. He's going to provide for us. He cares for us. Again, he's a faithful God. And we can stand in that truth. Amen? And it should give us peace in the midst of even the greatest storm. 
And so this great valid point based upon Jeroboam and Israel's ungodly behavior, their worship of golden calves. And by the way, not only that, let's keep reading. Look what it says. Not only did they do that, but it gets worse. It says in verse 9, Have you not cast out the priests of the Lord and the sons of Aaron and the Levites and made for yourself priests like the peoples of others' lands so that whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams may be a priest of the things that are not God. So here's what happened. He not only stopped having the people go down and make sacrifices to the Lord, he kicked all the priests and all the Levites out. And most of them went freely because they, they wanted to be in Jerusalem where true worship was taking place, where the temple was, where they're making sacrifices unto the Lord. So not only did he build golden calves, he kicked all the priests out. Now what does a priest do? A priest intercedes between God and man. So he talks to God on behalf of men, and he talks to men on behalf of God. Now we have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus, Amen. And he, you know, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, intercessing for us, and he ministers to us. Well, he kicked all the priests out of the northern kingdom. So Israel had no priests. Israel had no temple. Israel only made sacrifices to golden calves, and Abijah's calling him out. Bro, but you got golden calves up there. We know all about your golden calf worship. Oh, by the way, we know you kicked all the priests out, and anybody up there can be a priest. If they will just make some sacrifices, you'll put them as priests. Now, remember, the priests had to be Levites, and they had to be of the tribe of Aaron. And so what they were doing was taking priests from anybody who wanted to be a priest. And you know what I thought of? I thought about these people who want to have a wedding, so they have a friend go online to the Universal Church of Mars or whatever, and they pay 20 bucks, and all of a sudden they're, they're a pastor, and then they do weddings, right? And, I, and, and, you know, it's, again, what a bunch of nonsense, amen? If you're going to do that, just go have the justice of the peace marry you, because that guy's not a pastor, right? That guy's, he's not in ministry. But the point I'm making is that they're doing the same here. And so, so while Abijah and Israel was struggling, I mean, Judah was struggling, Israel was worse off. Israel had just flat out replaced the worship of the true and living God to worshiping calves, golden calves. Now remember, it was golden calves that were in Egypt, that place they were delivered out of bondage. It was golden calves that were at the bottom of Mount Sinai where God came down and smote those people for worshiping them. And here we are, and they're worshiping golden calves. By the way, if you ever go to Israel with us, plan on going again, in Dan, they still have the place where this worship took place. And where the, where the golden calves were, and it's on the far north end of Israel. And so instead of saying, now go all the way down there to the temple to worship where God wants you to worship, you can just worship right here in your backyard, and you can worship a golden calf. And we'll just, we'll just find you a priest. We'll just, anybody, anybody got a bull they can kill? Okay, you're a priest now. And so that's what was taking place. So Abijah is speaking the truth, and he's calling Jeroboam out. But he's got his own struggles, and we'll see that some more as we move forward. So you replace God's appointed priests. You know, you're worshiping false gods. And again, and he says there, which is in the hands of the son of David. You've been taken uh, from David's line due to Solomon's idolatry, the same sin Abijah now confronts Jeroboam with. And it's just, it's just tragic, again, to see the, the compromise that's been taking place. So he's cast out the, the, the priests, and there are no longer any priests. There's no longer any real true sacrifices to the true and living God in the northern kingdom whatsoever. Down in the southern kingdom, they do have some false idols set up throughout the land. It's a mess. It's hard to find a place, to find anybody that's really worshiping the true and living God. It sounds like the United States. Amen? And notice what it says here in verse 10. But as for us, the Lord is our God. And we have not forsaken him. So here's what he says. Hey, guys. Hey, you golden calf worshiping losers up there, right? Hey, you kicking all the priests out of town, not making any sacrifices to the true and living God. Hey, you phonies. We worship the true and living God, and we have not forsaken him. Our God is on our side, not your side. Now, here's the reality that the children of Judah are closer to God than the children of Israel are. Because they do at least have the temple, and they do have priests, and they do make sacrifices, but they've compromised too. Amen? And so, 
But from this point, he's making this stand, calling out Jeroboam, saying, hey, bro, you're not fighting against 400,000. We're on God's side. We didn't forsake him. You did. Righteous judgment is coming if you want to enter into this battle. And he's, he's really challenging them. So worship in the temple, sacrifices, again, the priests of the Lord, they were being faithful to the, the Levitical law, which was not happening in Israel. And he says at the end of verse 10, and he says, and the priests who minister to the Lord are the sons of Aaron and the Levites attend their duties. We have real priests. You've got Universal Church of Mars for 20 bucks, right? We have real worship going on down here. You got false worship going on down there. We have the temple with the Ark of the Covenant, with the golden lampstand, with the table of showbread, with the altar of incense, with the bronze laver, everything that God commanded. You've got none of it. You're worshiping a golden calf straight from Egypt. You guys are so far away. And so he's challenging them to say, look, we're on God's side, you're not. So if you want to get into a battle with people on God's side, people who have not forsaken God while you have, let's just see how that works out. So he's challenging them and he's making a stand. Verse 11, and it says, And they burned to the Lord every morning, he's talking about the priest, and every evening burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. So the children of Israel are worshiping false gods. The children of Judah are having the sacrifice every morning as the Bible, as Old Covenant prescribed. Every evening as the Old Covenant prescribed. Notice what else he says. He says, And they set the showbread in order, on the pure gold table, if you guys remember when you walked into the Holy of Holies, on the right-hand side, there's a table of showbread with 12 loaves of bread, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. On the left-hand side, there's a golden lampstand that had lights on. It was lit 24 hours a day, the picture of Jesus being the light of the world, and he's the bread of life. The altar of incense was in the back. It had to have, be lit 24 hours a day. And the incense went over into the Holy of Holies. And it's a picture of Jesus interceding on our behalf, praying for us. Incense is a picture of prayer. Inside that Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And you've heard this a lot if you've been coming here long, but the Ark of the Covenant, it's a box, not a boat. Amen. And so the Ark of the Covenant, it was bronze, gold, and then inside had a, the mercy seat on top of it was made of bronze. And when you, if you pulled up the lid inside of it, it had a jar of manna. He's the bread of life. It had uh, the uh, rod of Aaron. He's the great high priest, Jesus is. And the Ten Commandments, he's the word. And then when they put the mercy seat on top of it, there were two angels on each end, cherubim, their wings touched in the middle. And that was a picture of the resurrection because when they went into the tomb on Resurrection Sunday, they walked in and what did they see? Angels at each side and blood-stained clothes in the middle. So all of this was pointing to Jesus. So rightfully so, Abijah's saying, look, we have everything that God commanded us to have. And you got a bunch of golden calves. We, make wor we have worship, we have Levites, we have priests. We're making all the sacrifices It's the way God told us to, and you're worshiping golden calves. And so he's exhorting the difference between them. And while, again, Judah was not perfect, and Judah had some ways that they were compromising, they were certainly much more to being faithful to what God had commanded than the children of Israel in the north. And then he says this. He says, you have the pure gold table, the lamp son of gold with its lamps, uh, to burn every evening, for we keep the command of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Again, he said that twice now. We obey God and you don't. We honor God, not so much you guys. We worship the true and living God, you're worshiping golden calves. And so he's making a clear delineation between those who are worshiping God and those who are not. Those who are faithful to God and those who are not. Then he says in verse 12, now look, God himself is with us as our head, and his priest with sounding trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O children of Israel, do not fight against the Lord your God, the Lord God of your fathers, for you shall not prosper. Then he says, by the way, we're worshiping God, and by the way, God's on our side. God is for us. We don't care how many people you have. We don't care how great your army is. Our God is greater. And guys, we can have that same heart and that same passion, knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? And the, and the, what the other uh, translation says, God himself is our captain. He's our leader. We follow God. You follow golden calves. 
Now notice it says here they blew trumpets. Now in scripture, when you see this, these trumpets date back to the time of Moses, when God commanded Moses to set up trumpets for the nation. The trumpets would be used for various purposes, but usually they were a form of communication. If the trumpet was blown a certain way, when they were in the wilderness, they knew they had to pick up and move to the next place. The trumpet was used, again, when they were to pack up and head out. It was a warning when the enemy was attacking. If the enemy was coming, they would blow the trumpet, and they would know that they're about to go into battle. And the priests were also in, the priests were in charge of blowing the trumpets, and at times the trumpets acted as a way of getting people's attention and giving them direction, but in numbers, it was a way of getting God's attention. They would blow the trumpets in a way of you know, calling out to the Lord as we would do in prayer. It says this in Numbers 10. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be in your ordinance for, for, forever throughout your generations. If you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, you shall blow the alarm of the trumpets, and you shall be remembered by the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemy. So God said, if you blow the trumpets when the enemy comes, I will bring you victory. So now, because they know what the Word of God says, because they are you know, do have the temple and do have the ark and are doing the sacrifices the right way, even they got some idols in town. He also blows the trumpet because they know what the word of God says, because God will bless those, again, who cry out to him through the blowing of the trumpet. So the war warfare was tied to the Lord. The Lord wanted to enter into their battles. And he said, you guys are fighting against the Lord. Guys, we don't want to fight against God. Amen? Amen? You will lose every time, by the way. Every time. God is greater. It says this in Isaiah 45. Destruction is certain for those who argue with their creator. Does a clay pot even argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim how clumsy you must be? No. How do you know if you're fighting against God? It's not because things aren't going well. We know we're fighting against God. We are deliberately ignoring what he's commanded us to do. Let me, make that, let me say that again. You're not fighting against God because things aren't going well. Because sometimes when you're standing with God, things don't go well. Amen? Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, not if. So we're going to go through trials as believers. So sometimes we can be standing for the Lord and we might face great opposition. But here's how we know what we're fighting against God. When we're going contrary to what his word commands. You've heard me say it before, rebellion or fellowship, choose one. You can't walk in open rebellion against God and expect to be in fellowship with God. If God commands that you're not to do this and you choose to do it anyway, you know what the Word of God says, and you just say, I don't care, I'm doing it because I want to, and I'm going to feed my flesh. Well, that's when you're at war with God. You're at war with God when you disobey His clear commands and choose to walk in open rebellion against Him. Again, Abijah, for all his shortcomings, speaks of the power of God, the true worship of God, of God. He comes against idolatry in the northern kingdom. So how is Jeroboam going to respond? Now, when you're confronted like that, you can do one of two things, right? When I say this often, when confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. You can make excuses, accuse others, or repent, right? I'll, give you an, I'll use myself as an example. I haven't gotten a traffic ticket in 20-something years, but I remember the last ticket I got, I was living in Lancaster and I was driving, I lived in Lancaster and I, my office was in downtown LA and I was driving way too fast because everybody on the 14 freeway does. Just go and mock two with your hair and fire. Around the desert, there's nothing around and everybody's got to get, you know, everybody wants to get to work. So I'm driving along all of a sudden, whoop, and I get pulled over. And I was in my early 20s. And I, I remember saying, well, why'd you pull me over? Everybody's going the same speed. Now, so when confronted with sin, you can make excuses or accuse others. I just did both. I made an excuse and I accused everybody else. Well, we're all going the same speed. And then I started kind of giving the guy a little bit of a hard time. I've never done that since. And this is the way that God loves to correct us. So he goes, I noticed when I walked up here, you had a Christian fish on the back of your car. And I see that you have a Bible in your front seat. And he says, doesn't the Bible somewhere say about submitting to the authorities that God's placed over you? That was 20, that was 30 something years ago, and it still hurts, amen? That's called conviction, amen? But the point is that when confronted with sin, we can either repent 
Or we can do something else, make excuses, accuse others. Now, Jeroboam's been confronted. Dude, you're making golden calves. Dude, you kicked all the priests out. You're not worshiping the true and living God. You're outside of God's will. You're outside of God's plan. Jeroboam could have said, you're right. You're right. We're going to tear down the golden calves. We're going to start worshiping in Jerusalem again. I'm not going to keep my people away because I'm afraid they won't come back. We'll come down here in force to worship the true and living God at Pentecost and Tabernacle, all the different feasts that we're supposed to come. We'll be here. You don't have to worry about that anymore. That's not what happens. So point number three. The battle belongs to the Lord. Trusting God is for us and with us when the battle changes and you feel outnumbered. Look what happens. But Jeroboam caused an ambush to go around behind them. So they were in front of Judah and the ambush was behind him. So he's having this speech. He's giving this speech. And when he's done with the speech, he turns around and sees that he's got them surrounding him on, in the front and in the back. Now, all of a sudden, he makes this bold statement about God is on our side, and how dare you fight against God, and you're a bunch of idol worshipers, and we're not forsaking the Lord, and we still do worship in the temple, and you guys don't have priests anymore. And he gets done talking, and all of a sudden, he turns around, and there's an army behind him and an army in front of him. And those of you who don't understand how battles go, you don't want to be in the middle, okay? You don't want to be on the low ground, and you don't want to be in the middle. You want the high ground on the outsides, right? Looking down, you guys are toast. Where are you going, right? And so this Jeroboam, from the world's perspective, has outflanked him. Jeroboam looks like he's going to win the battle. But guess what? Our God is greater. And right now, we can look at our world, and it looks like the world's winning sometimes. Amen? When we can't figure out that we're just male and female, something's wrong. When we can't figure out all the simple things and the truth of the Word of God, and it's so ridiculous, the things that are being taught and being told to our young people especially. And so what's happening is we can look around and it looks like we're outnumbered by the world. But the good news is, God is for us who can be against us. And greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Now notice what they do when they're surrounded. And I love this. I love this. And when Judah looks around, those two southern tribes, to the surprise, the battle line was at both the front and the rear, and they cried out to the Lord, and the priests sounded the trumpets. Now, when they cried out to the Lord, it literally means an exclamation, crying out to God, kind of like when I say, Lord, help, which is one of my favorite prayers, right? I tell you guys that. I often say, help, Lord, help. I do that all throughout the day. Because there's times when we're confronted with things, we need wisdom from God, and we just say, Lord, help. And that's exactly what happens. They look up, there's an army in front, an army behind, they're surrounded, and they just say, Lord, help. They cry out to God. And guys, there's no better place to be. See, if your army is so great, you outflank the enemy. If you recognize that our God is greater, you cry out to God. Amen? So Jeroboam outflanks the enemy. He's fighting from a physical perspective. And guess what? You fight from a physical perspective, I'll fight from a spiritual one, and you'll be defeated every single time. Amen? And that's what happens. So here's Jeroboam. He's got him outflanked. So what do they do? They don't, get a, they don't beat their chest and say, well, let's go take them on. They say, Lord, help. You see what's going on down here, Lord? We're surrounded. Lord, we need your help. We can't do this without you. Don't you know that God allows us to be in that place sometimes so we will recognize our desperate need for him? When we come to a place where we can't fix it, where we don't have enough money to pay it off, we, we, we can't heal somebody no matter how many doctors we take them to, it's good to come to a place where only God, God has to show up or we're done. And then when God shows up, he gets all the glory. Amen? So here's what they do. They cry out, Lord, help. Lord, we need help here. We're, we're surrounded on both sides both the front and the rear, and they cried out to the Lord, and the priests sounded the trumpets. Now remember, the sounding of the trumpets was a call to battle, but it was also a call out to the Lord. It was an act of worship to cry out to God. And it, and it said in earlier texts that when, when they cry on the trumpet, that God will hear them. And guys, when we cry out to God, He hears us every single time. Amen? Now sometimes we think, well, He didn't hear me because He doesn't respond in the way we want Him to respond. But he always hears you, but he doesn't always respond the way you want him to. 
We don't pray to change God's mind. We pray to change our hearts. Amen? We pray that God would show us what he wants us to learn, what he wants to teach us through all of this. Just quickly, I, you know, one of the things I've prayed for a lot, and my wife prayed for it, and God did it for my wife, but he hasn't done it for me yet, and I trust him. But one of the things I've prayed for, and only because I've had a couple pastor friends who've had children die, tell me they, that they prayed this prayer and God answered it. And here's my prayer. And God, if God says no until I get to heaven, then he can do that. But my prayer is, Lord, can you give me a vision of my son in heaven? And at first when I thought about praying that, I thought, is that out of line? And I was talking to a couple pastor friends and they said, you know what? My wife and I prayed that and I had a clear dream of my son in heaven and it brought so much peace to me. And I said, well, Lord, I'm praying for that. My wife prayed for it. My wife's had it happen four or five times where God just gives her a vision during a dream at night of our son in heaven and just wakes up and it just brings peace to her life. Now, I pray for that too. Sometimes God says no. Maybe he wants me, the Bible says, faith is the substance of things, hope for the evidence of things not seen. Amen? And maybe God wants me to just keep faith in him having not seen that. Now, I, I know in my head and in my heart my son is there, but as a dad, I'd like to know he's safe at home. And I do know that, but to get a glimpse of that would mean a lot to me. I would, I would trade my house for that. But that being said, sometimes God says no. Amen? Now, God can do that if he wants to, and God may still, and I still pray for it every night, and I will continue to. But it says there, so here they are, and they, they're surrounded, and they blow the trumpets, and they cry out to God, and Jeroboam's got them surrounded, and Jeroboam thinks he's going to win the battle. Now, watch what happens. Point number four, if God is for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 15. Then the men of Judah gave a shout. And the men of Judah, as the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam. Now, 400,000 soldiers or one God, which one's better? Amen. They had 800,000 against 400,000. They had them surrounded. They cried out to God and God struck Jeroboam. Now, it doesn't tell us in the text how he struck them. It doesn't, we don't know if he just from heaven just put his hands on them and, and put them on the ground or if he struck them by giving favor to the army of Abijah and just let them run over the top of the enemy. We see in Scripture him doing both. We see in Scripture where he'll just cause the, the army to get confused and they're all killing each other. You see it with the children of Israel often where they're, they're outnumbered by huge numbers and God will just bring victory. And sometimes he brings it by strengthening the army and sometimes he brings it by confusing the enemy. And there's other ways that he chooses to do it. He doesn't tell us exactly how he does it here. I have in mind that he did something more on the supernatural side. And it says there, as a minute it happened that all... Again, he sound, they sound trumpets, they gave the shout, the men of Judah shouted, it happened that God struck Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. So they said, God is for us, you're fighting against God, we continue to make sacrifices to God, we continue to worship God, you're forsaking God, you're idol worshipers, you've turned your back on the true and living God, you don't come down to, to temple, you don't have priests anymore, you've walked away from the Lord, God is on our side, you're about to find out. They get surrounded, they cry out to God, and God shows up. Guys, that's our God, amen? But sometimes he lets us be surrounded, like I said before, so that we will cry out to God. I've had people in my life, many, who've said, the only time I pray is when I'm in really really desperate situation. And they'll say, I've been in a lot of them lately. I'll say, that's because God misses you, bro. Amen. And sometimes it takes us to come to that desperate spot before we cry out to God. My prayer for all of us is it wouldn't take desperation to get us to cry out for, to God. But at the same time that we would always remain humble, broken, and desperate. Now notice what happens in verse 16. And the children of Israel fled before Judah and God delivered them into their hand. They started running away. They got 800,000, we got 400,000, they're running. Why are they running? The same reason 11 foot 750 couldn't fight off a teenage shepherd boy, amen? Goliath and David, 11 foot 750 and a little ruddy teenager who his own father didn't even bring in to be anointed king because he thought he was too big of a wimp to even be on the list. 
He showed all his other sons. Guys, because David had the Holy Spirit. David had God on his side. And Goliath, who challenged him and defied the armies of the true and living God, was a mere man, not going against a young boy, but going against the creator of the universe. And the same thing was happening here. Jeroboam had him outmanned, had him surrounded, had him outnumbered from the world's perspective. But God was on the side of Judah. And because of that, we see that Judah is now running for their lives. Same thing happened with the Philistines. They were all bad until David took Goliath down, and then they all ran away. And they chased him down from behind. And the same thing is happening here. Verse 17, Then Abijah and his people struck them with a great slaughter. So how many? Read that number. 500 what? 500,000 choice men of Israel fell slain. More people died on the opposing army than, it, than Judah had in their army. 500,000 men of valor, mighty warriors, died. Why? Because God was against them. See, it doesn't matter how great the other army is. It's the greatness of our God. See, your enemy is only great if your God is small. We don't serve a small God. We serve a great God. Amen? Our trials are only great if our God is small. Again, we don't serve a small God. We serve a great God. Then it says there in verse 18, after the 500,000 choice men fell slain, thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. If that is your Bible in your hand and you have a pen, you should underline the second half of that verse. Because what, look what it says. The children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. Why did they prevail? Because they trusted in God. They relied in God. They hung on to God. They were in desperate need of God. The word relied upon there means to lean on, to trust in, to support. See, courage comes from leaning on the Lord. Sometimes it seems when no one else when there's nowhere else we can go, there's no one else we can lean on but the Lord. Yet that's exactly where God wants us to be, totally relying upon Him. Guys, He needs to be your strength. He needs to be your source of hope. He needs to be the one that you're holding on to with both hands. And when we put our hands on when we're resting in Him, when we're leaning on Him, then we can be courageous. We don't have to be afraid when we're leaning on Jesus. Amen? When we're holding on to the things of God, we can walk in fearlessness. The children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. The chronicler wanted to point out, to be clear, the reason why Judah defeated Israel, even though they were surprised and outnumbered, was because Judah relied upon the Lord. Right now, we're going through a tough time financially in this country. We may have a recession coming on. They're saying that the average family is going to have to spend $10,000 more this year for the same things they bought last year because prices are higher. So we can get concerned because financially we're struggling. But again, what, whether it's finances, whether it's uh, illnesses, whether it's children who've walked away from the Lord, whatever we may be going through, may whatever those difficulties are get us to rely upon the Lord. And if they do, it's worth it. Amen? Because if you cease to rely upon the Lord, if, you, if you've always got your focus like, like Rehoboam and Solomon, I got all the gold in the world. I, I don't have to be worried. I got the biggest army in the world. I don't have to be worried. I've got a thousand women and, and hundreds of children. I mean, I'm, I'm the greatest man on the planet. And when that happens, you cease to be desperate for God. And that's why we need to pray for people that are... By the way, if you could have everything in the world that you ever wanted... If you could have everything in this world has to offer that you ever wanted, it would never satisfy you. I don't care if you have billions of dollars. I don't care if you're famous. I don't care how many followers you got on TikTok, right? I don't care all the things that you may think that the world wants you to have. And if you got all of it, it's possible to get all the world has to offer. But even if it did, it would never satisfy you because what you have is a God-shaped vacuum that only Jesus Christ can satisfy. Nothing else. And these people are brought to a place where they realize we're outnumbered, we're outmanned. They cry out to God. They lean on Him. God delivers them, and God gets the glory. Amen? Now, I want you to notice this as we finish up. Look what it says here in verse 
uh, 17, uh, verse 19, verse 18, where it says, The children again of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took the cities from him, Bethel with its villages, Jeshunah with its villages, Ephraim with its villages. Now I find it interesting that one of the villages they took was Bethel. And Bethel is where they had the golden calf. So that golden calf didn't do a very good job defending itself, did it? How's that golden calf working out for you? So Bethel means house of God. What, what absolute blasphemous thing could you do that put a golden calf and a temple to this golden calf in the house of God? And it's not by chance that the house of God gets captured and taken back away from the golden calf worshipers. Amen? Guess what? Before it's over, we're going through Revelation right now. I encourage you to be here on Sundays, right? We're in the church age. We're about to get in chapter four on. We're going to go through the great tribulation. But at the end of it, we're going to come back and rule and reign with the Lord on the earth for a thousand years, seeing what the world would be like with God on the throne. Amen? And I cannot wait to take this whole stinking place back. Can I get an amen to that? They had Bethel for a minute. They got this world for a minute. They took Bethel back, and God's taking the, the, the new heavens and new earth, and we're going to rule and reign with him, and thank you, Jesus. Amen? And we're getting it all back. The enemy wants it. I don't need it. It's all going to burn. We're going to have the new heavens and the new earth. Amen? Let's finish up. Then it says, so, so if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 20, so Jeroboam did not recover strength again in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him and he died. How's that working out, Jeroboam? How's that whole golden calf thing working out? And I'm like, I'm not, not going to get into this controversy because it's just nauseating, but you, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the Grammys thing, right? So you hear about the Grammys thing, this transsexual uh, star of some, I've never heard of him, but he gets up there and he's dressed like Satan and his song is called Unholy. And everybody on stage is worshiping Satan, basically, on national television. Now, again, I'm not as worried about it because nobody watches the Grammys anyway. Can I get any into that? But the reality is that this is the world we live in where people are praising the worship of a false god. It's tragic. Amen? It's heartbreaking. And this is what happens. Jeroboam was worshiping a false idol, and in the end, he died. He turned his life over to the false gods of this world. And the end is lost. Now look, people that don't know God, we should be praying for every one of them to get saved. Amen? We, we want to see every believer this side of heaven should be burned for every unbeliever this side of hell. We want to see people born again. We want to see people saved. But notice he never recovered his strength. You know what that means? His army never got as big again. Everything that he lost in, as he was worshiping the false gods of this world, he never got any of it back. His army was decreased. Now, he's going to outlive Abijah. But what it's telling us is in the end, the Lord is the one who brought judgment upon him because he was worshiping the false gods of this world. By the way, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Before it's over, doesn't matter who you worship in this life, you're going to worship the King of Kings when it's over. So man, this man, this king called to lead God's people, led them into idolatry and God struck them down dead. Last point, be hot or cold. Look what it says, but Abijah grew mighty Married 14 wives. Did he learn anything from his dad or his grandpa? At least it keeps getting less. Went from 1,000 women to 16 women to 14, but that's still way too many. Amen? And he begot 22 sons and 16 daughters. Now the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings are written in the annals of the prophet Edo. So there are extra biblical writers, and some of those things that were written are, are there, but the rest of the acts of Abijah and his ways. So what kind of report card would Abijah get? Was he a good king or a bad king? In this chapter, a lot of what he does is good. He's crying out to God. He's saying that we're, we're not forsaking the Lord, even though he had some idols. But he was, certainly they still had temple worship. They still had high priests. They were still making sacrifices. When they got in trouble, they cried out to the Lord. They were blowing the trumpets. They were doing a lot of things well. But we also know that he was a man of compromise. It says in 1 Kings again, And he walked in the sins of his father, which he had done before him. His heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as his heart of David his father was. Nevertheless, for David's sake, 
The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to set up his son after him to establish Jerusalem because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So the reason, the main reason Abijah is being blessed is because his dad was so faithful. I pray that we would live such faithful lives that the blessings of God would be poured out on our children. Amen? So in closing, and by the way, we don't want to ride on the fence. We don't want to be lukewarm. The Bible says, be hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Guys, I want to be on fire for God. Amen? I don't want to just be, you know, kind of saved, right? By the way, you can't be kind of saved. It's going to be kind of pregnant, right? You can't do that. Either are you aren't, right? You're a saint or an ain't. You're born again or you're not. But the point is that as believers, we shouldn't be satisfied that by comparing ourselves. To, here's how we get lukewarm. We compare ourselves to other people. And we can always find people worse than us. But what we really need to do is compare ourselves to Jesus Christ. And we realize we all have fallen short of his glory and that we need to be more like him. So the battle belongs to the Lord, trusting God, that God is for us and with us. When we're outnumbered by the world, God is for us and with us. When we make a stand for the Lord, God is for us and with us. When we battle changes, the battle changes and you feel outnumbered, God is for you and with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And finally, be hot or cold. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. You are a great and awesome God. We're thankful that the battle belongs to you, that you're a faithful God, a loving God, and a merciful God. We're thankful because you're for us. We have nothing to fear. We're thankful, Lord, that you plus us is a majority. Help us, Lord, to walk in the center of your will, to be the men and women of God you've called us to be, and help us, Lord, to cry out to you. Help us, Lord, to Again, blow the trumpet to call out to your name in the midst of the trials of this life. And Lord, to never lose sight of who you are, to praise you always. And Lord, do what's necessary in our lives to keep us humble, broken, and desperate. Keep us in a place where we don't lose sight of our need for you. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said...